Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 877. 877. And as you're finding your place, uh, there's a lot of great things about the world that we live in, uh, but it's also true that we live in a world that is full of injustice. Uh, I was thinking just this week about all of the people whose lives have been uh, devastated by the war in Ukraine, both on the Ukraine side and the Russian side. All for what? Uh, I think about our brothers and sisters who we prayed for earlier this morning, who face persecution all around the world for their faith in the Lord. And unfortunately, as Americans, we don't have to face that. Uh, but even here at home, people can be victimized in any number of different ways. And think about theft, or murder, or rape fraud. And sometimes the, the perpetrator is never caught, and, and the victim never has any sense of, of closure or, or resolution. In some cases, the perpetrator is caught. They end up getting off scot-free, which is just like pouring salt into the wound. And other times, punishment is given, and yet even then, nothing can truly undo the, the damage that has been done. On the other end of the spectrum, sometimes people are falsely convicted for things that they didn't do, and they have their lives unjustly taken away from them through a faulty system. And, and even beyond crimes, there are all kinds of, of just wrong experiences that we face in life, natural disasters and relationships that are broken, financial difficulties, plans for our future that fall through the realities of sickness and death, all of the, the things that make life difficult and that cause us to groan inside, knowing that things should not be like this. If we live long enough, we will encounter injustice, wrong. So how should we as Christians respond to the injustice that we see in the world and that's in our lives? Well, there may be a number of different things that we should do in response to injustice, but this morning, Jesus is going to highlight one of them, perhaps the most important one, as he tells what is commonly known as the parable of the persistent widow. And so we're in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to begin with verse 1. Luke writes, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so last week, Jesus taught about the present and future realities of the kingdom of God, as we saw that, that the kingdom of God is already here, and yet it is not everything that it will be eventually when Jesus returns. And as we move into chapter 18, Jesus continues teaching his disciples by telling them another parable. Now, most of the time, Jesus just gives a parable, and it's left to us to interpret and apply the meaning of the parable. But here, Luke actually explains right up front what the parable is for. 
And we see that it's intended to emphasize the need for us always to pray and not lose heart. Always to pray and not lose heart. And so right here, we see where this entire passage is going. Jesus wants us to understand the importance of always praying and not losing heart. And now the idea of, of always praying isn't suggesting that we should stay in a, a perpetual state of active prayer. Right? That's it's physically impossible. Now this is similar to what we saw in our study through 1 Thessalonians, where, where Paul calls us to pray without ceasing. And we saw what that means that our lives should be characterized by a disposition of prayer. Right? Throughout the day, as we come into different situations, as we encounter different people, as we recognize different needs, we should regular be, regularly be taking all of those things to the Lord in prayer, asking for his provision and his intervention. As we see evidence of, of God's work in the world, we should stop and praise him for his goodness. And when we become aware of sin in our lives, we should confess that and ask for forgiveness and the ability to repent of it. So we should be consistently touching base with the Lord always. Jesus says that the alternative to this is losing heart. A formal definition of losing heart would be to lose one's motivation in continuing a desirable pattern of conduct or activity. To lose one's motivation in continuing a desirable pattern of conduct or activity. So there's something that you want to do something that you know you should do, but for one reason or another, you become discouraged in pursuing that goal and you give up on it. New Year's resolutions, right? Is, is exactly uh, something that, that fits that definition. All right, and so when it comes to prayer, I'm pretty sure that all of us at some point, perhaps many times, ha- have come to a place where we think to ourselves, this is pointless. This isn't accomplishing anything. This situation isn't going to change. If God was going to do something here, he would have done it by now. I'm just going to move on and and go forward with life. When we become convinced that prayer is not working, it's easy for us to lose heart and give up. And so the parable that Jesus is about to give is designed to motivate us to keep praying in the midst of seasons where we would be otherwise tempted to give up. And so we'll read the parable as we pick up again, beginning in verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so as Jesus begins the parable, he introduces us to a judge. And he describes the judge as being someone who neither feared God nor respected man. And so this judge has has no particular religious convictions, and he doesn't care about the well-being of other people. Or... From a different angle, this is a judge who doesn't care about God or what other people think about him. So this implies that that despite this judge's responsibility to apply the law properly to the issues of society, this judge isn't committed to doing the right thing. 
and he probably abuses his authority to serve his own interests. Then in verse 3, we're introduced to a widow. And as you'll remember, widows were pretty much at the bottom of the totem pole in the ancient world. They were economically and socially vulnerable and very easy to take advantage of. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us the particulars of this particular widow's situation, but apparently she has been wronged in some way by somebody. And now she has the unfortunate task of seeking justice from this dirtball judge who doesn't care about God or other people. Now, the Old Testament law was full of provisions for widows, just like we saw when we went through the story of Ruth. And so even without knowing the specifics, we could assume that this is probably a fairly open and shut case. But in the middle of verse 3, we see that the woman has to keep coming to the judge to demand justice because he refuses to rule in her favor. Again, as a widow, this woman has nothing to offer this judge on the one hand, and she has no leverage to use against him on the other. So he doesn't see her as as worth his time, and he simply dismisses her out of hand. But we see that the woman keeps coming back over and over again, demanding that this judge do right by her. And it gets to the point where where the judge says to himself in verse 4, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the language that he uses here, in in its literal sense, is actually fairly violent. Uh, But as it's used figuratively, it, it indicates that this woman's persistence is more than a rock in this man's shoe. Right? Every day he gets to the office and she's already there waiting for him, demanding justice. Every afternoon when he gets in his car to go home, she's there waiting on him, demanding that he give her justice. It gets to the point where every night when he closes his eyes, he sees this woman and he's having nightmares about her demanding justice. And finally, he, he, he says to himself, you know, if I just give this lady what she wants, she'll leave me alone. And I can go on with my life. And so finally, the judge grants the widow the verdict she rightfully deserves. It's been a long time coming, but justice is finally served in the end. And now Jesus is going to apply the parable for us as we pick up again one last time, beginning in verse 6. Luke writes, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so having told this story, Jesus presses his point home here in verse 6, where he says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Listen to what he says and think about it. If an unrighteous judge will eventually do the right thing, if for no other reason than to be left alone, then how much more confident can we be that God will give his people what is good and right for them? In, In contrast to this unrighteous judge, God is infinitely loving. He is infinitely good. And he is infinitely just. And Jesus insists that he will give justice to his elect, 
meaning his chosen people, those he has saved for himself through faith in Christ. And so without, without breaking the flow of the passage, it's worth pausing to consider the fact that God has a people, right? The church. Where did the church come from? Well, it came from a bunch of sin and rebellion against God, which is unjust treatment towards our creator, right? That places each one of us under his righteous judgment. Well, that raises a second question. So how did the church get from condemnation to reconciliation? Well, Jesus took upon himself the penalty for, for, of the wrath of God when he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin so that we can be spared from God's judgment by trusting in him. And so this reality of the church being the people of God reminds us of two things when it comes to, to the rights and the wrongs of this world. First of all, it reminds us that God understands injustice. Right? God understands injustice. He has experienced injustice in the worst possible way as his infinite majesty and glory have been defied by a human race that has rejected his rightful authority over us. We have absolutely no right to do that. If that were not enough, rather than completely wipe out the face of the earth, which is what any one of us would have done in God's position, God goes even further and sends Jesus to take the punishment that we rightfully deserve for our sin for us. On the cross, the greatest injustice of all time took place as the sinless Son of God was put to death by wicked people. And so sometimes when life isn't going well, we can get this, this picture of God being up in heaven where everything's great and he's completely out of touch with all the craziness that, that, that's going on down here. But the truth is that God knows injustice far better than we do. God knows injustice in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. And then secondly, this reminds us that we as believers are people who have not received justice in the best possible way, the absolute best possible way. What we rightfully deserve is eternity in hell. But instead, what God has, has done is that he chose, he elected to be merciful and to save us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Church, what an unfathomable demonstration of love. Right? If, if everything else in our life goes completely wrong, in Christ, we are still far better than what we deserve. And what other hope does this reality give us in the midst of our suffering? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 8, in the face of everything that makes life difficult, when he writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right, the point is that if God was willing to do that and, and to send Jesus to die in our place, then he's not going to hold back anything else that would be good for us. And Jesus promises that God will give justice to his people who call out to him in prayer. Now, the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 raise the issue 
of how and when God will establish justice. When Jesus says, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And there's a a major interpretive challenge here in in trying to understand what this means. And In fact, there's a, a standard count of nine different ways that we could understand this, and some people push it to as many as 12 different ways. Now, we don't have the time or the interest to cut through all of that right here, right now. You can come back tonight for Q&A if you want. But we're just going to focus uh, for now on the main options. And the question is, is, is this talking about speedily in terms of timing, in terms of manner, or in, ta- in terms of certainty? In other words, is Jesus saying that God will quickly answer our prayers for justice? Or is he saying that when God answers our prayers for justice, it will happen quickly? Or is he simply emphasizing that God will certainly answer our prayers? Well, in light of the context, where last week Jesus talked about the the sudden, unexpected nature of the judgment that will accompany his second coming, this could be understood as manner. However long it takes, when God answers our prayers, it will happen quickly. And that also makes sense of our experience, right? Because many of us have prayed for things for years without uh, seeing an answer. That doesn't seem to be very speedy in that sense. On the other hand, the, the most natural way to understand speedily is as a sense of time, something that happens quickly. And when it comes to the disconnect between the promise and our experience of the promise, we may should keep in mind that the Bible's view of time and our view of time are often different. And we've talked before about how we are, are in the last days, according to the New Testament. And to us, last would seem to be, you know, final in, in terms of a, a chronological sense. And yet, uh, we've been in the, the last days for 2,000 years now, which doesn't seem to be very speedy uh, in that sense in coming to an end. Peter addresses the same dynamic in chapter 3 of his second letter when he tells us, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so God and we sometimes use different clocks to tell time. We remember that that Paul describes our afflictions in this life as light and momentary. They certainly don't seem like that to us most of the time. And yet, against the backdrop of eternity, they really are light and momentary. And so both of these nuances have pros and cons, and both of them are true, regardless of whether or not they're Jesus' exact point right here in this particular text. But it's also true that the expression speedily is used elsewhere to indicate the certainty of something happening. And when we, we've been in the prophets before, and we, we've seen that sometimes a future event is portrayed as if it's already happened in the past in order to emphasize the certainty that it's going to happen. And in light of the the pros and cons of the other nuances, I think this is uh, the best option. Jesus is emphasizing here that God will certainly give justice 
to his people who cry out to him day and night, which also allows the other two nuances to be in play as well. But here's the thing. Whatever the specific nuance is, Jesus promises that God is going to make things right for his people. But then he ends the passage with a question. When he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so the ball, as it so often does, gets left in our court. God's going to take care of his part. The question is, are we going to do our part? When Jesus comes back, is he going to find a people who are waiting patiently and expectantly for him? Or will he find a people who have lost heart and, and moved on with their life? Of course, the question is left open-ended because the answer depends on each one of us individually. And so the question for us this morning is, what will it be for you? In our passage this morning, Jesus emphasizes the importance of praying in the face of all the injustice in the world and not losing heart. Last week, Jesus described the time between his ascension back to heaven and his second coming as a time in which his disciples would long for him to establish his kingdom. And now what we see here in the first part of chapter 18 is that this is also a time that is to be characterized by prayer for God to do that, for his kingdom to come. And we've said before that prayer is the primary way that we express our dependency on God, but we should also recognize that consistent prayer is the primary way that we express our confidence, our faith, in his promise to answer our prayers. It's easy for us to pray about just about anything once. But it's it's our, our practice of persistent, ongoing prayer that really shows whether or not we believe that God will eventually make all things right again. You know, people often uh, like to say that the the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And and certainly long-term prayer can seem like that at times. And we we may ask the question, how how long, how many times are you going to keep praying for that same thing? Well, here in our passage this morning, Jesus shows us that the answer to that question is always at least once more. At least once more. Church, this this passage is intended to sustain us through all of the difficulties of life, no matter how how bad the storm becomes to, to keep our heads above water. Because whatever it is that we are going through, Jesus promises that it will not always be like this. The Lord will establish justice for his people. Just like we sang a few moments ago, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world, and the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. So how can we live well in the midst of difficulty? How can we love our enemies? How can we seek to do good to people who are actively seeking to make life difficult for us? How can we faithfully persevere in discipleship in the midst of all of the evil and injustice and suffering that we experience in life? Well, we have to have a rock-solid conviction that God is going to take care of it. That's the key. 
And we have to have a rock-solid conviction that God is going to take care of it. Underneath the anger or the fear or, or the, the bitterness or whatever other emotions we may have, we have to have an unshakable confidence that one day the earth is going to be made new. God's people are going to be saved and God's enemies are going to be put down once and for all. Everything that is wrong in this world will eventually be dealt with either through Jesus' death on the cross or through an eternity of judgment in hell. And the way that we express this conviction, but the way that we exercise this conviction is by prayer, by calling out to the Lord, pouring our hearts out to him, asking him to establish his kingdom and to empower us by the Holy Spirit to live in the ways that he's called us to. Church, God loves his people. He is committed to, to what is best for us. And between now and the time of his second coming, he has promised never to leave or forsake us. And so however long it may seem to take from our perspective, we can and should consistently continue to pray with confidence that God will answer our prayers in his perfect timing. And so this morning, may we be people and a church that is characterized by confidence in the promises of God's word and that expresses that confidence through persistent, consistent prayer. And let's pray together.